0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books uh, Network podcast on how to be wrong. I almost got that wrong. I'm John Trapagan, your host for this exploration into the nature and experience of intellectual humility and the value of screwing up, which I'm actually quite competent at. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kite Brown, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. IT's research examines the intersections of religion, race, gender, and sexual alterity, criminality, material culture, sensory epistemologies, and social media practices among African diasporic religious practitioners in the Caribbean. That is a mouthful, Um, but it's also really fascinating. so, um, and she also looks at Latin America and North America more generally. She's currently working on a book entitled Afro Queer Journeys Transnational Revival Zion Religion in Jamaica and Panama. Kaiti received her PhD from Harvard and is a research associate at the Center on Transnational Policing at Princeton. Thank you for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm really, really excited for this opportunity to have this conversation with you.
0: Me too, and, and since we're actually colleagues in the same department and basically have virtually never talked, I'm looking forward to chatting too, so this is going to be fun. Um, so I'd like to begin by just asking you to talk a bit about your own intellectual journey, what led you to the study of religion, how did you get interested in questions of you know gender and race and this kind of thing, and, and also in particular the uh, African diasporic uh, religions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I think every time someone asks me this question, it feels like a very long and circuitous answer. Um, So, I'll try to condense it and make it make sense. Um, So, really, I think my journey, my intellectual journey started, um, you know, growing up in Jamaica. So, I grew up in Jamaica, and, you know, religion is pervasive, it's sort of just woven into the fabric of everyday life and everyday society in a way that you know schools are all schools are religious sort of religion is everywhere national prayers all of that and so I I think growing up as a sort of young person as a child you know there were always questions around religion uh you know whether even you know sort of you would say good morning to somebody and it's you know, good morning, you know, how's the weather, so on and so forth. And it's also, you know, it's the last days. And this was kind of the just kind of general refrain. And, you know, I think I was always an inquisitive child that also, you know, led to a level of anxiety around questions about religion, right? You know, what does the last days mean? Um, how many days do we have left? Um, you know, these kinds of questions. And I remember, you know, just certain key points in my life where these questions around religion really became important to me. So I remember once, maybe it was in the sixth grade, I got in trouble because I think we had a religious studies class. Um And I remember asking my teacher, okay, so... You know, who made God? You're talking about God made everything. So can you tell me then who made God? And you know, my teacher got upset and you know, I had to go stand outside of a class and you know, was considered uh as being really disruptive to the class. And I didn't understand because I felt like that was a fair and reasonable question to ask, but you know, there wasn't sort of a space to ask these kinds of questions. Um, and then in particular to um I remember another profound moment, which was actually kind of funny, was, um, you know, my classmates would often talk about sort of religion. And I remember one classmate in particular was always talking about demonic possession. And I sort of latched onto that particular idea. And I was completely terrified of, you know, demonic possession. What does that mean? What does that look like? And um, in particular, when I got to high school, I, I remember there were these missionaries from the U.S. actually who came to our school to show a film called Left Behind. And at that point, I had never heard of the rapture. I... Knew no concepts of this, but you know, literally watching that film completely terrified me, and you know, it was quite traumatic of a film. But really, that started this process of thinking about religion, thinking about Christianity, thinking about God, thinking about these kinds of questions. Um, and then ultimately, I when I got to the US, when I got to college, um, I went to Emory University as an undergraduate. Um, and I remember it was time for us to, you know, begin thinking about a major, and I at the time, I thought I wanted to be an English major. I was like, oh, I'm a good writer. Uh, you know, what else should you do if you're a good writer? But be an English major. But looking at all the classes, I was like, British 18th century British literature. I don't care. Um, and- <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hear you
1: so you know i but the the classes that i was drawn up to were classes they so i Emory there's a specific field that's called religion and sociology so it's a joint field together um and i remember the questions under uh that that uh major were classes like you know religion and reproductive justice um you know there are questions on sort of religion and the sociology of happiness uh, just all kinds of classes that really you know, stood out to me as, oh, this is really, really interesting and something that I might want to pursue. So, you know, that's how I started to think of the questions around religion. And that was the first time I took a class. I think it was a class called, um, maybe it was called Historical Jesus or something of that nature. But that was the first time I was in a space where it finally occurred to me, oh my goodness, the Bible didn't just fall from the sky in this sort of pre-packaged way. And I mean, I think I had some semblance of an understanding of that, but I had never had a space where that was an actual conversation. So to have my professor actually talk about it, break it down, talk about it historically, how we got to it. And that was my first time sort of realizing, okay, this is a human production. And so that really um, you know, just led me into thinking just more about this thing that used to control my life so much and caused me so much anxiety and told me who I could and could not be and so forth. I felt really empowered to start asking back questions to it, right? And so that's really how I uh, started that journey and then I remember I had an African American history class once and um, I remember I gave a presentation in class one day and my professor at the end of the presentation he was like can I speak to you after class and I was like oh god he's probably going to tell me this was terrible what was you know what is this and you know he said you know have you ever thought of doing what I do. And I was like, I, I don't, what do you, what do you do? I, you know, I barely know what that is. And um, he gave me a brochure to a program called the Mellon Program, which is um, an initiative to get more underrepresented people into the academy. And so I took the brochure and I went to a meeting about it. And they had a little academic boot camp over um, the summer. And I remember uh, the, Uh, administrator who was in charge of it. She asked me what I wanted to do after college. And I was like, oh, I want to be a lawyer. And she was like, look, every Black kid who's smart thinks that they want to be a lawyer. You know, you can do that if you want, but how about you try this boot camp? And if afterwards you still want to be a lawyer and you want to go to law school, that's fine, but just just try this. So I tried it and, you know, fell in love with the idea of graduate study. I had no clue what PhD was. I had no idea what that entail, what that meant. I really didn't even know what my professors really did. And that was my first time realizing that that was a path for me and that was something that I could do. And so, you know, that's sort of where my intellectual journey um, really started. And sort of in particular, as it relates to African diaspora religion, in particular, Revival Zion, which is a indigenous um, Jamaican religion. Um, you know how that started again? I You know, growing up in, I remember one of the stories that I like to tell about this is I remember growing up, um, initially when I started my academic journey, I was interested in looking at the relationship between the sacred and the profane in Jamaican society and understanding how those two things work together and what I call the osmotic relationship between the two. Because the interesting thing for me was always seeing how on one hand, it was a very religious country, but on the other hand, there were, you know, so many other sort of secular and sort of cultural practice, in particular dancehall culture and dancehall hall music, um, was something that I was really, really interested in, and I was really looking at the relationship between those two things and those two spaces when I first started my sort of academic journey um, in college, beginning my first research project, um, and so really going back to that, I remember my dad when I was maybe around 11, 12 years old, uh, he had um, you know, he would get CDs burnt for him about different music, so music you know old school kind of music and one time his friend accidentally gave him a dance hall cd and i remember the cd was called bad influence and i remember my dad was like okay i don't know what this is and so he gave it to me and i listened to it and fell in love with dance hall music but i always like to use that as an example because later on in life i realized how I started to study Revival Zion was the fact that Revival Zion was also this religion that I remember there was a church at the beginning of my community in Jamaica. And it was, you know, people would talk about it as obia, which is a Caribbean catch all term for this idea of sort of sorcery, witchcraft, black magic, you know, anything that's sort of antithetical to Anglophone Christianity. And so for me, I remember even we would drive past it, my mom would be like, don't even look over there. That's an obia church. You don't want to, you know, be a part of it. And I remember with the Bad Influence TV, I really realized how I came into everything that I study is anything that people say is a bad influence. I want to know about it. If it's a bad influence, if it's something we're not supposed to do, if it's something that there's all this suspicion around, I want to understand why. I want to know why. And so I think in all my studies, whether I'm looking at sort of racialization, whether I'm looking at queerness whether i'm looking at revival zion obia dance hall i'm thinking about you know alterity i'm thinking about the other i'm thinking about the thing that people say you know is the bad influence is the thing that you don't want to do and i want to know why we why we don't want to do that you know what is so scary about it what is sort of almost you know the power that's in it because at the same time it's almost this kind of um you know, almost like seductive quality to it, where it's sort of both maligned, but also people are kind of obsessed with it, right? You're, you're saying it's a bad thing, but you can't stop talking about it. So I think that's kind of how I got to my interest in uh, studying revival Zion religion as a religion that I grew up around and that I heard a lot about. And then one of my undergraduate um, advisors, she was one of the few people who ever wrote a book on it. And so... Um, You know, that was my first time even I had to actually move from Jamaica to the U.S. to get a different perspective on a religion that was there. Because while, even when I would present on it and so forth at conferences, if there were Jamaican people in the audience, they were like, why are you interested in this? Why are you studying this? You know, and so um, you know that's kind of the circuitous long I hope that makes sense. How I oh, do it, that. yes, it's
0: wonderful. And and I think one of the things that really intrigues me is that you know being able to build around what is basically a simple question. My my entire academic career has been built around one question: Why do people do what other people tell them to do? It just fascinates me that people will line up and do what other people tell them to do. <laughs> And and you know, and it's. I think sometimes people don't recognize how really simple a question one can ask to build a very complex understanding of the world. There's something else that's uh, just. I'll I'll convey with you here that um, we we actually share something in common related to Jamaica. My grandfather, great grandfather, was one of those missionaries. Oh
1: really? Oh wow!
0: In the in the early 20th century, he was a British missionary in Jamaica. Um, and actually the reason he's my great grandfather is because he found a little white girl in one of the villages and stole her because a little white girl shouldn't be raised by oh black people.
1: Goodness. That is so fascinating.
0: It, it's, I don't know too much about it. I do have a, a photo album and we'll get together sometime and, yes, and you could, you'll probably find it interesting. That. Yeah. Yeah. But me, yeah um, but it's, this isn't about me. This is about our conversation. And um, so, you know, I, this is a really interesting kind of background that, that you have and how you've kind of come to these different things. And so, you know, we're talking in this podcast about things that kind of go wrong and and things that challenge and, and undermine our ideas um, and, you know, sometimes even, you know, bruise our egos. And so I wonder if you could give any examples of a couple of situations, maybe a professional, maybe a personal one, where... You were just wrong and you realized it and you were motivated and moved by the situation and how maybe it affected the way you thought about things. I'd be really curious to hear about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I really love this question. Um, and I think you probably could relate to this a little bit, John, because so, you know, you're an anthropologist and also my method is, you know, well, I don't consider myself an anthropologist per se, but I consider myself an ethnographer. And although I was trained by anthropologists, um, but I remember one of the more profound times was, so, you know, I'm at Harvard getting my graduate education. I took, uh, anthropology of the religious course and it was a two-parts course the first part was theories the second part was methods where you know prior to going into the field we are learning about you know how to do interviews or we making our interview guides or we designing or research we we're coming up with a protocol we we're submitting it to irb and i felt so amazing i was like i've got this this is i have my tape recorder I bought an expensive like Canon professional camera and I go to, you know, I initially started my research in Panama, but um, initially when I started that, I didn't have IRB. So I, it was just more informal in Panama. But when I went to Jamaica, I was like, now I'm a professional. I'm going there. I, so I remember I get to this church and they're sort of setting up for a ritual. You know, I'm walking around with all these papers in my hand and cat recordings and you know, and I go there and I have my interview guide. And I say to the uh, bishop, I I said, you know, so your um, sensory epistemologies of um, you know, how are you thinking about and this man <laughs> looks at me as though I had like five heads and you know, and of course, now I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, why was I, how was I asking this man this type of question? Um, and I just remembered, I in the moment, I kept trying to be like, okay, I know this doesn't make sense. Let me try to like switch it around in my head and figure out a different way to sort of get at these questions that I'm asking. But no one cared about any of my questions. Nothing that I was doing going in with my sort of, you know, hypothesis that I had going in, what the questions were, they were just like, girl, what are you talking about? Like, I do not know what you're saying. And I literally had this moment of existential crisis because, one, I started to feel like, what am I actually doing? I feel like I'm bothering these people. They're living their lives. I'm here, you know, asking them a bunch of random things that they don't care about. And that was like the first instance, I would say, of a real sort of intellectual humility and research humility. And you know, I remember I had to, I went back to where I was staying and I cried about it for a little bit because it was more so this feeling of, okay, I feel like they sold me a bunch of lies. They told me that when I went to the field, I was and I just don't even know where to go from here. And you know, but I I I got up, I went back to the church and the man was just like, look, put away all these papers. And he was just like, look. You know, in this space, he was just like, you know, he literally said to me, and people said it to me over and over and over again, they were like, these are spiritual things and your carnal eyes will never understand them. And so they were like, the way that you're trying to approach it, they're like, if you want to learn with us, they're like, you have to sit with us. You have to listen. You have to be humble. You have to sort of almost submit yourself in a particular kind of way. And so, I had to reapproach things completely differently. Where you know, I just started to come to stuff, and I'm like, okay, can I help you with anything? And you know, I would sweep the floor sometimes. I would, you know, help them cook something. You know, I would buy stuff and I would bring it. Um, you know, and they would say over and over, they would be like, you know you're considered a baby in the spirit. And these are like spiritual things to understand. And that was my first time, you know, and throughout the course of my career, really that reshaped my approach to how I do research and how I think about my research. Um, And just even realizing sort of whatever, you know, cachet, a Harvard education gives you did not count in that space because what counted as authority, what counted as knowledge, what counted as, you know, what's important and what's privilege was just not the particular set of skills that I was bringing to the table. And so I had to, you know, relearn how to learn. Um, but then it was also, also a weird experience because it's like I had to deconstruct myself to go into the field and then come back. And then when I have to translate that back to what my professors want, how I'm going to reframe it in an academic package, then sort of rebuilding that was just sort of like, a am like, can we curse on this? I don't was <laughs> like, it's like a mind fuck process um you know to get to that point but i think i would say that's one of the sort of key moments of you know intellectual humility that i experienced in my professional life and even now as i'm training students when i have sort of methods class around ethnography i'm like look i actually want you to go to the field and feel like that if you go to the field and you feel completely good about everything that you you went there with and your questions make sense and you came back feeling wonderful I don't think I did my job at all. If you don't go there and you aren't questioning ethically, why am I there? What am I doing? What, right do I have to be bothering people? You know, if you don't come away with different kinds of questions or, you know, all of that, I, I, I just don't think you could be a good ethnographer without that breakdown kind of process, you know?
0: Yeah. I, um, that this, this is so thoroughly captures how powerful ethnography is to just utterly humble the researcher. It is overwhelming. I, when I first got into the field, you know, I, I got to the little village in Japan and I, and I did what they used to tell you. And, you know, notes and queries, they say, well, the first thing you do is you go around and you do a, a, a census, right? So I knock on a next door neighbor, is the first person I knock on his door and I say, hi, you know, I'm your new local anthropologist here to study you. And and uh, I'm doing the census. And and he just looks at me and he goes, well, it's none of your business. That's private. It's none of your business who lives here. And then he said, besides. It's all in City Hall. And then the subtext was, you dumbass. <laughs> and I just I just walked away with my tail between my legs and went home and thought, oh, this sucks so bad. And the funny thing is, is about six months later, I'm walking through the middle of the village. And, and he goes, hey, John. And I say, yeah, come on, let's drink. In the course of about 45 minutes, I drank six or seven glasses of shochu, which is this just like battery acid kind of alcohol. I was so drunk, but that was the test. He tested me and, and after that, he actually talked to me quite a lot. It was really wonderful to chat with him, but I just, you know, I was just, I was so arrogant about the way I started and, and, and it was really deflating and I've thought about it ever since. And I thought about it when I, when I got back and I started writing my dissertation, I've had this feeling. And with everything I've written, I sit there and I write and I think, am I just making this shit up? And, it, it, you know, in a sense, I am just making this shit up because I'm picking and choosing what matters. And this got to me so badly that the last book I wrote, I decided to write a novel, an ethnographic novel. It's a murder mystery set in Japan in my field site. All of the stuff is is based on reality, except for the story. But I finally thought, well, you know, why don't I just make this shit up? In other words, why don't I try to package this in a different way that tells a story, really tells a story, instead of pretending to be this objective observer looking at things? And I don't know. We'll see. It's been used in a couple of classes. We'll see what happens. But um, But it just doing field work living in another place is just it's sort of in terms of one's ego it's almost debilitating it really is i'll, I'll tell you one other quick story this, this is, was really funny i guy died in the village and they had the you know funeral and everything and and i go into the they got the body laid out in the uh you know living room and um they're burning incense. And, and the guy that's kind of running it says, yeah, we burn incense around the clock. And I immediately put on my anthropology hat and go, Ooh, can you tell me the deep symbolic meaning of all of this? And he goes, ah, no, the body stinks. You got to cover the smell. We don't embalm here. <laughs> you know, it's just like, uh, okay. Yeah. You, you got a point there. Um, but it's, it's really valuable to be wrong in that way because it, 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 you know, it undermines that sense of confidence we have in what we're observing, and and I, I just I love your story because it really captures that that feeling about you know, no these people are experts in what they're doing and I need to shed that sense of myself as an expert and and just try to learn what they do, and and ditch all that theoretical bullshit and all that other stuff and and you know I, I can do that later but that's yeah, a great story
1: yeah and and I think to add to that you know something that People don't often talk about, um, you know, there's just a deep sense of vulnerability, right, that comes with, you know, doing that kind of work and even being wrong and so forth, because even and i think people don't talk about enough about that in this kind of work where you're relating to people you're having relationships and with that comes a sense of you know being exposed and 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 being moved in certain kinds of ways and so almost the way that we protect ourselves is this sort of objective pursuit of knowledge. But at the same time, it's like there also comes a scary and and deep vulnerability that comes up with, you know, doing this kind of work as well. And even I remember, you know, so after, of course, years of getting to know people and I'm more comfortable, I remember also I so a part of revival Zion uh, religion you know people wear sort of spiritual uniforms where the you know, spirits will tell you the kind of color and how to make it and so forth and so there was a particular pilgrimage and again, at this point part even though I'm getting used to everything, there's a level in which participant observation. I can sort of, the observer part is the part that I feel comfortable with. The part that is not as vulnerable, that kind of gives you still that kind of outsider status to everything. And I remember at one point, um, you know, one of the women was like, you know, you should get a uniform made for you. I want you to wear the uniform and come and be a part of us. She's like, you know, you're always standing on the outside. You're always... Taking your pictures and we love the pictures, but like, you know, she's like, you're gonna get a different experience. She literally said, you know, don't be a tourist, be one of us, right? And I remember feeling really uncomfortable. And even so the morning of the pilgrimage, I'm getting sort of the uniform fitted and I'm nervous, and I'm saying, you know, part of it was, I don't want to feel like an imposter. I don't want to feel like I'm just playing dress up. And also the the real reality of it too was more than that, it was also a feeling of. When I'm in the uniform, I'm going to be indistinguishable from everybody else. And also people are going to expect that I know everything that's going on and, you know, various genuflections and prayers and things that you have to do. And if I don't know it, you know... As an academic, you're not comfortable with not knowing things, right? And so feeling like, oh, I, I, I don't know, and I don't want to not know, and I don't want to be made a fool of, or I don't want to feel uncomfortable, seeming like I don't know. And, you know, again, they said to me, look, that's fine. If you don't know, the only thing people are going to think is, oh, she's just a baby in the spirit, and we will teach her, and that's fine. And, you know, I put the uniform on, I got everything together. And it was also some moment of vulnerability of you have a head wrap that you have to wear. You know, that communal sense of women helping me to tie the head wrap fixing my clothes for me. Um, you know, I we had to sit on a bus and go on this journey to up the hill and all of this. And, you know, I didn't know certain things, but people weren't there to help me. and be like, okay, this is what this is. This is what that is. And, you know, I remember just having such a different experience. And I'm like, this experience that I had here, I'm actually so happy that I was able to be vulnerable to have that experience because it felt just completely full circle where everything I had done before, you know, she was actually right. You know, this almost kind of sense of like, it sounds a little corny, but almost transfiguration when I actually put the uniform on, I allowed myself to no longer be identified completely as sort of an outsider. And so, you know, just everything that you were talking about just reminds me of the other part of humility. It's also this vulnerability that I think is quite scary.
0: Yeah, my my uh, dissertation advisor, Keith Brown at, at Pitt, um, often commented, he, he went to the same place for 40 years. He first went there in 1961, the year I was born. And, um, but he often commented that the the importance of investing yourself in the community, you're not this objective outsider looking at it, but you need to become invested in the community and that builds trust. And, um, you know, that was, I had, I've had some similar experiences when that same funeral a little bit later, there's this ritual that goes on where, um, in in some parts of japan where you uh, they cremate the body but they don't cremate the bone dust in japan they cremate to the bones and so the f- the the family lines up and they go in and they take this large uh pair of chopsticks basically and in their left hand because the left is the opposite of the right and so it's death is the opposite of life they they go in and each person picks one bone out and puts it into a box and that is going to wind up being the ancestor of well, in, in this little village, they're all kind of related to each other and everything, so they all do it. And so I'm at the at the you know cremation, and I'm observing. And one of the folks says, uh, "Okay, get in line." And I said, "Well, no, no, I'm not part of this." And he said, "No, no, you're part of our community. You should be able to do this too." And so I went in, and I wound up doing it. And and you know, from a, a, a sort of scientific perspective, it was fascinating. But the thing that was really important was that they were saying, we trust you. And, and you know, that comes from opening oneself up, being vulnerable, being willing to let them know who you are, and, and you know, really developing a relationship with people. It was a, it was a very powerful moment for me because you know, I was like, oh, wow, you know, I guess in some way I've been, you know, I'm never not going to be the outsider. That's clear. But they have said, you're the outsider, but we're going to let you in we're going to let you in a bit here. And, and uh, again, it's another, you know, very kind of humbling thing because it makes you sort of rethink yourself in relation to the context you're in. And it's very powerful. Um, let, me, let me, so your research is focused on, you know, a variety of different topics related to race and gender and sexual alterity. And, you know, I noted note of this when we started out. And we're talking about this issue of intellectual humility, and one of the things that I've been you know struck with as I've kind of gone through this podcast is that um, when people are talking about this concept of intellectual humility, it tends to be treated as not being influenced by factors like race and gender among you know other kinds of things and uh, the, the, the sort of red flag that goes up in my head is uh, that this can't be right. There's got to be something else going on, you know, with this. And so I wonder if you might, you know, talk about that. And, and you know, the question has been on my mind is, you know, is the idea of intellectual humility in some way a product of an academic context that's, you know, very much dominated by neoliberal values and which are basically products of a, you know, white Euro-American culture? Um, you know, how does... How does that presence of, of the the dominance of white culture in the academy shape the way people? Think about, or maybe even don't think about, intellectual humility. I'm curious what you might think about that.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really great question. It's a question that I spend a lot of time thinking about. So even you know, um, as a graduate student, I spent a lot of time in the history of science department. Uh, weirdly enough, where I think that's actually, if I wasn't doing exactly what I do now, that would probably be the field that I would actually be in because I. You know, that was one of the first fields that also introduced me to even the production of knowledge itself, right? And the way that, you know, science is deified in a particular way um, in our society and, you know, sort of tied to objectivity. But, you know, then really breaking it down and realizing how much of what we know and how we know is really, you know, tied to... um, you know, particular groups of people, particular ways of seeing the world, and you know, one of the things I always like to tell my students is, you know, who is producing the knowledge, you know, decides how the knowledge is produced, and you know, who's asking the questions determines what's quest- what questions get asked, right, and. You know, I think that's something that's just been really important in my journey to always uh, think about that kind of way we're producing knowledge. So not only what what the knowledge that we have is, but how do we arrive at that? And that's something that I always sort of try to. So, for example, this semester I taught a course, a grad seminar, religion and the senses. And part of the uh, the point of that course was to think about sort of you know the senses not just as these physiological kind of taken for granted things, but sort of the cultural production of the senses, how different societies privilege different senses, how that's, you know, the, the hierarchy of the senses, and how that relates to various kinds of other sort of stratification and hierarchies in our society, including, you know, how we understand the world, how we engage with the world, what we deem, you know, sort of worthy and unworthy as sources of knowledge, what we find disgusting, what we find appealing, all of those kinds of things. Um... But in particular, even when I think about the question of intellectual humility, um, you know, I think the concept of intellectual humility, I think, you know, there are related concepts in, you know, other sort of milieus. So, for example, even in Jamaica, there's like a phrase um, that says, you know, almost it's a phrase that humble calf drink the most milk, which is sort of this idea that, you know, sort of through humility and through sort of, you um, you know, being able to, you know, almost understand the things that you don't know, you gain so much more, right? And so there's sort of various concepts around that that I that I always find important and that I always think about. But in particular, um, on another vein of that, though, that I find interesting in the academy from an opposite angle, though, is that as it relates to race and gender in particular, I think there's, a different kind of problem that I encounter, which is the problem of presumed incompetence, right? And the problem of, it's not so much even, well, for me, I think what I often struggle with is the sort of meshing of sort of my own perspective of, you know, so, I, well, I'll say one thing. I remember, I forgot to tell you this. So I remember when I was 18 years old, I first getting to college, you know, this is when Facebook was first, a thing where only college students could use it. You could put a little quote. And I remember the quote that I put as an 18 year old that I said was my favorite quote was the Socrates quote that said, you know, true wisdom is knowing that you sort of know nothing. And that was like my favorite quote as an 18 year old. And, And I think that's governed me a lot throughout the years. That's something that I think a lot about. Um, But going back to sort of balancing that sense of always wanting to know and always sort of being aware of the things that I don't know, there's also as sort of a woman, as a Black woman, as a Black pair woman, I think there's also within the politics and sort of conventions of the academy, there's also a different sense of kind of imposter syndrome sometimes that comes with So it's a different type of thing around intellectual humility that's a different kind of problem where there is a level in which almost you're more willing to say, okay, I don't know, or you're almost more willing to you know, allow yourself to be challenged in particular ways that some of your colleagues might not necessarily, um, you know, sort of feel that same kind of pressure. Or even the the fear of being wrong, I think, feels like it it carries a greater weight. Because I think there's often a sense of, okay, people are probably already presuming that I don't know what's really going on or, you know, there's just all these other assumptions that people make about you. And so, you know, you don't even have sometimes feel like you have the freedom to even be wrong and be okay with it, you know? It's almost like, oh, I have to be on my P's and Q's. I have to go into the classroom and to prove that I belong here, I have to always make sure that I know all the answers. And I always have to make sure that no one can sort of, think that I don't really belong and so I think there's this kind of invisible pressure that you know some of my other colleagues might not feel um, especially once you get to be senior if you're a senior white man you know there's there's already also a presumed competence where even if you know absolutely nothing I remember I presented once at a conference and this old white man in the he was not even an academic and not to say that if you're not an academic you can't know things obviously not but I was presenting on I think something on Rastafari or something like that. And afterwards I was speaking to someone else and he interrupted the conversation to insert himself to tell me that he went to Jamaica seven times and therefore, you know, whatever that I was saying, he knew so much more about it. And just the fact that he felt completely comfortable to do something like that, I was just completely appalled, but you know, and I've had several sort of experiences like that where you're just loud and you're wrong and you don't feel any kind of embarrassment about it in any way. Whereas even when I know I'm right, sometimes I still hedge and sometimes I still kind of, you know, try to you know, second guess myself and that's something that, you know, I've worked a lot on over the years to be a lot you know to be more comfortable with not doing that but you know it's not quite the answer to your question but but I, I I when I was thinking about it I'm like there's also a different side to the intellectual humility as it relates to race and gender around how you navigate um sort of you know this one on one hand humility but on the other hand how do you sort of position yourself as someone who knows, you know? I hope that makes
0: sense. Oh, it, it makes enormous sense. I, I think um, it actually answers the question very well. And, and I, I had a actually kind of a similar experience many years ago where they, they used to have a thing uh, where they would bring parents in and faculty would come, you know, freshman parents and, and faculty would come and give lectures and I was asked to do this and I gave a lecture on religion in Japan. And an old white guy in the um, audience after I was done, basically raised his hand and told me how I was entirely wrong, that I didn't understand anything about how religion works in Japan. And he then, you know, said, um, you know, I, I i think I asked him, well, have you been there? And he says, oh, yes, yes. I said, really? How long were you there? He said, oh, I, I was there two weeks. I said, oh, dude, you, <laughs> you got it down. Uh, you know, but what was interesting on I think this to me is interesting. I shot right back at him. And, you know, I could I could kind of play the confident white guy position and just throw it right back at him. He didn't really back down. But if uh, you know, I I had the certain kind of, um, I guess, cultural, um, symbolic capital, basically, that allowed me to be in a position where I could just shoot right back. But not everybody has that position. And I think when we start talking about issues of, of race and gender, we can see that. Symbolic capital is not um, equitably distributed across members of the academic world at all. Um, And, you know, on the one hand, uh, sometimes we don't know, but you're really put in a difficult position when you don't have the capital to be able to say, I don't know, and be able to move on confidently. So it's a really powerful observation that you're making. I think it's really important for people to understand that, you know, I mean, this this word systemic racism gets used a lot. And I think this is an example of that. It's not its not like overt racism, but it's this sort of underlying aspect of the way, in this case, symbolic capital is distributed that creates a kind of um, atmosphere of racism that puts people in a position where they, they can't function confidently, they can't be, you know, they're kind of like almost always vulnerable in a sense. And so I was would that describe it the way you would, would think about yeah, it? Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. I think it would. And, you know, I think that the sort of invisible elements of it that I was talking about where, and, you know, at, at some point you obviously get used to it, right? So you, in, in some ways you're so used to it, but it's only certain instances will come up when you're like, I'm actually... Always the way that I describe it is if you have tabs open on your computer, you know, the more tabs you have open, the slower the processing, right? But also, if you just have those tabs open all along, you kind of no longer are aware of it, but you're like processing so much more in the background all the time, right? And so, sometimes it's not until certain things happen that you're like, I actually have a lot more things that I have to process, you know, where I'm walking into a room. And so, for example, even I remember. You know, just something small, like where I had some kind of problem, you know, within um, some administrative stuff, even, you know, in our university. And they did the thing wrong several times. And Well,
0: our university administration, (laughs) that's like, that's their middle name. Do it wrong. Sorry, I shouldn't say that.
1: (laughs) No, and I mean, they were, not only was it wrong, but it cost me money. And at the point where I'm like you've cost me money by doing this wrong. And you're very nonchalant about the fact that you have cost me money. And I, you know, started to get upset about it. And so by the time I was talking to the lady, I was like, ma'am, like this has been the third time, like you haven't listened to anything. You're now telling me that I owe the university money because you approved something that you shouldn't have. It was the whole thing. But the whole point was, I remember in that moment feeling like, well, you know, I knew I'm also a Black woman. There's also stereotypes of, oh, you're angry as a Black person. And so I don't, even though I had every right to be angry, I felt like I couldn't be angry. I still had to be really nice. And smile because I don't want her to think I'm combative. I don't want people to think I'm a bad person to work with or that I'm difficult or, you know, and I realize I'm sure if my like white male colleague said this, he would just say and move on with his life. There's nothing extra to think about. There's no sort of, you know, even if you have a bad reputation, you'll still sort of get by in life, you know, in some way. And so, you know, sort of that invisible weight of that is, you know, constantly uh, there in different kinds of ways. And um, yeah, so absolutely, it's not really distributed equitably. And the interesting thing, too, a lot of people, a lot of people love to play the race card. I am mean, like, the worst card is the worst thing. You, No one likes playing that. No one likes playing that card, actually, because I think what I find more often is you try to find, oh, maybe it's not that. Like, you, we do more of that than trying to say that is what it is. I find myself being like, oh, well, you know, when you experience microaggressions, when you experience, you try to actually find every other reason why it's something else first, actually, before you think that, right? Because it doesn't actually even benefit you to think that it's, you know, it, you're like, I already have a lot of stuff to think about. So let me just assume that you're just you didn't know or you know whatever it is and so it, it's a different kind of labor um as it relates to that but i certainly think though as the, around the question of intellectual humility um yeah i just wanted to raise that as a counter to that you know or another alternative to thinking about that is when race and gender come into play how there's different questions that come up around intellectual humility when you start to add, you know, that to it. And I I think that's something people should certainly talk a lot more about.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, listening to your, your explanation of this, I was thinking about, let's say that administrator didn't have any of that feeling at all. That still doesn't negate the fact that the context creates a situation where you have to think about that. It it really doesn't matter what was going on in that person's head, because the, the the overall structure, the overall atmosphere that we live in, just inherently has that floating around. I, you know, I, kind of back to the you know issue of, of ethnographic research, but uh, to me, this has been one of the most valuable things about doing research in Japan. I am not the majority there, and although the experiences are very different from being black in the United States. I still have had this experience of people immediately making decisions about me on the basis of the way I look. And um, generally in Japan, they're positive experiences. I've had a few negative ones, but really not very many. So it's not like there's anything that I can you know, complain about. But still, it's, a, it's, it's different to be in a situation where you know that just who you are, just the way you physically happen to look, is sort of always in the background of every conversation that's going on, whether people mean anything or not. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's floating around in there. And um, I had this <laughs> one experience where I was, I went to the local, um was a local meeting. The police came to talk about crime in the village that we were living in. And he went off on this kind of long discussion about how most of the crime in Japan is by foreigners I just kind of looked at him and, and he said, oh, but not white people. <laughs> it's like, dude, wait a minute. <laughs> but but it was just, you know, that that's a perfect example of this kind of, you know, there's these assumptions that get made. And again, almost irrelevant to whether what the intention of the assumption is, they're there. And they shape the way that we can then interact with each other in a context like the university where... You know, theoretically, we're all supposed to be equal, but that doesn't make those assumptions go away.
1: Mm -mm. No, yeah, it absolutely doesn't. And, and, you know, and I just think being just more transparent around these assumptions is just the only thing that, you know, we can do to sort of work towards more equity because I think not talking, because, yeah, you know, and that's one of the things I try to also talk to my students about is just, Again, with the question around who's asking the questions determines what questions get asked, right? Because so much of our intellectual query comes from personal experience. As much as people might act like, well, this all just comes from the sky. It's like, no, the things that we pursue usually are influenced by some kind of experience that we have. If you've never had a certain experience, you will never even think of that as a question to ask or think about, right? And so even when people talk about diversity, it can just be this kind of throw around term that I sometimes find it very annoying, because sometimes it's just very superficial. But You know, in reality, what it does is like when you have a diversity of people and experiences and people are, you know, people are seeing from different vantage points. So, for example, if I've lived on top of a mountain I'm seeing different things. And so the questions that I'm asking are going to be so different, someone who lives in the Valley, because they're looking at completely different things. And so when you're having the mountaintop person asking questions and the Valley person asking questions and the person that lives by the river asking questions, you get sort of a more comprehensive, you know, view of the whole world that you're living in. And that's really the way that I like to think about it and why that's important and why, You know, we need sort of that diversity. It's not just for tokenism or, you know, whatever. But it's literally even intellectually, it's more interesting. If the same five white people are asking the same questions, that's not interesting. And if you care about knowledge, if you care about curiosity, you should care about more people asking questions.
0: Absolutely. You know, and and the, the other thing that comes along about this is the importance of having the discussion, the discourse. So, you know, my my kids are, are mixed race. They're, they're not white. And one of the things that's really struck me, particularly with my daughter, it's important to talk about her experience because as a white male, I cannot understand it from her perspective because I can't be her. This is, One of the fundamental things we learn, you know, in ethnography is that you you can study the way other people live. You can try to live the way they live, but you will never be them. And so there's no way for me to know what it is to be, you know, um, an Asian American in the United States and, and what that means in terms of racism without being that person. So we have to talk about it. We have to talk a lot about it because it's the only way we're ever going to begin to understand you know, at least some element of it. Um, And I I don't think there's enough talking going on. There's certainly not enough listening going Mm, on. Oh, no.
1: No, No, absolutely not. And I think even in, in my personal life, you know, that's, just also true, right? Even when you're having relationships, you know you're never gonna be that other person. No matter if you're married for, to them for fifty years, they still have a whole internal world, a whole set of experiences that you know aren't yours, a whole set of other things. And you know, part of that is you know cultivating empathy and culture and it's hard, right? It's it's not easy. Uh, but also, and just like active listening, and that is something that I try to practice because I also realize when I sit with active listeners I literally come away feeling so different because it's not what they're saying it's not anything it's the fact that you are curious and the fact so even having this conversation I really like it and I really appreciate it because it's a space to actually practice that active listening because sometimes it's like even in relationships like I don't even want you to do anything. It's not that I need you to fix something. It's not that I expect that you even necessarily have an answer to something, but just the process of being met and seen, you know, is something that I think, we think of mostly in personal relationships, but I also think in sort of broader social relationships, just having that kind of being seen and met and having more opportunities for people to talk and see and meet each other, you know, and again, as corny as it sounds, but in their humanity, I think, you know, is important. And I think for me, that's part of what even the intellectual project is about. You know, it's not about just the cerebral, you know, just knowledge for knowledge's sake, and let's provide encyclopedic knowledge. No, it's also sort of a way to, to why I do ethnography, why I study Revival Zion, is this is a religion that's been demonized, but this is people's lives. This is stuff that is important to people. This is stuff that also influences me as a person. It's, you know, the way that they see the world, that the way that they do things, has things to offer and sort of, you know, by putting this project out there, it's not, okay, I get tenure, that's wonderful. But also it's a way to sort of, you know, bring sort of a wider conversation of the multiplicity of humanities that exists, right? And so, you know, that's the, one of the reasons that I do the work that I do.
0: I think that's in the humanities and social sciences, that should be the guiding principle of everything that we do. It, it should be at the core of, of what our mission as academics is, is to, you know, as I think uh, Ruth Benedict said, make the world safe for diversity. But, um, but, but that's really, we, we have to have that conversation. We have to have those things out there and, and be talking about them. So, well, for one thing is it's one way to, to reduce fear you know people tend to be afraid of things they don't understand and don't know and if you have the discourse you can do something about that
1: yeah yeah I know absolutely absolutely and um yeah, because even just in this short time that I've done this work, even my parents, who they also grew up with a particular understanding, or so like my mom will read my stuff. Some of it, she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds smart. She's like, <laughs> she's like, it sounds smart. But even in, for example, when I come back from ethnographic trips, when I talk to her about stuff, even in my parents, it brings me so much joy to see even them understanding this religion in a different way. And even now how, like when my mom will explain what I do to someone else, I just hear how her level of empathy has changed. Because she's no longer afraid of this. Because she's like, okay, if Kaiti's doing it, it can't be that bad. If she talks to these people all the time, then it's not a demonic thing. Nothing has happened to her. You know, she's better for it. And so I think that reduction of fear, you know, is just, I've seen it happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it's profoundly important. Um, so, we're We're kind of coming to the end of an hour here is there Is there
1: anything you'd like to
0: add that we haven't really talked about in relation to this topic
1: um, Wow well, yeah I <laughs> Don't even know, um put you on the spot there, but <laughs> yeah, we talked about so many wonderful things, yeah. I was trying to think if there was anything else that I um wanted to wrap up with um no, you know, I feel like I've said most of what I wanted to say, but um you know ultimately, um in terms of I think I remember one of the questions that I looked at was around sort of um, wait, what was the last question? Because I felt like I wanted to say something about it that was on the table, wasn't it? Well
0: I did I did have another question and of course we can go longer. And um but the one question I asked was what do you think the most pressing question in intellectual humility in your particular field of study is? And and I think that's an interesting question.
1: Yeah. Um so I thought about this question and um it was hard to really think about an answer for that question because i think my answer leaned towards the academy itself and not so much my specific field but i think in terms of my field though um it goes back to what i was saying around you know who is asking the questions and what kinds of questions are being asked and i think sort of within any discipline, any field. Once you get to the point of being a discipline and a field, you get disciplined in a certain kind of way and you develop conventions and you develop ways of doing things that are now traditional and you develop ways of asking questions and you develop the kind of tropes that you're going to use and so on and so forth. And I think within Africana religions in particular, you know, there's, the, one of the, the sort of foundational, um, Questions that governs it It starts with the sort of Melville J. Herskovitz versus E. Franklin Frazier debate around the roots of Black culture in the Americas. Right, so of course you have Herskovitz on one hand was arguing that you know African Americans didn't lose all their culture because of transatlantic slavery; they actually have these African retentions, and so the African retentions model. And then E. Franklin Frazier was saying, okay, everything is erased, all of African American culture in the new world is a product of just sort of these new world experiences and of course the herskowitz model is more you know the one that you know has favor and yes there's retention but i think sometimes there's this kind of rehashing of this trope of searching for Africanisms, And what I found, especially in looking at Revival Zion Religion, is that because people are searching for Africanisms in particular ways or looking for through particular lenses, um, there's this sense of, again, You're asking the same types of questions and there really needs to be different kinds of questions that are asked. And so I think overall for me, I'm just a huge advocate of constantly revising and rethinking the questions that we're asking, Um, you know, constantly evaluating the tropes that we use. Um and being open to that because yeah I think you know it just almost is a natural disciplining process that happens where you get comfortable like now we're a discipline and now this is the way that we do things and these are the important questions and now we've developed our canon of things and then everyone is just like sitting on their laurels with that and I think part of intellectual humility is being willing to sort of dethrone the canon at times, and to be able to say, even though this is the way we've always done it, there might be a different way to do it now, and, you know, there's, and and I think that should be part of the project of, you know, the academy of any discipline is never to get so comfortable that you find yourself 50 years later talking about the same thing that you were already talking about 50 years ago, you know, just always being willing to kind of have that humility to ask new questions and to also revise your own work. Cause even for me, whatever book I write, I will be happy to write it. I hope it's very useful to a lot of people for a, lot, for a long time, but I also will be happy if I can go back and say, you know, chapter three made no sense now to, like now today I would say something completely different and that shouldn't be a shameful thing that shouldn't be an embarrassing thing that should be a wonderful thing that you know I now years later I think you know because even one thing I love doing is reading my old journals and even old papers that I wrote in college and some of it was complete nonsense <laughs> and It's a little cringy, a little embarrassing sometimes to go back, but also it's a testament to my growth. And it's also a testament to the intellectual humility of, you know, you can't actually pride yourself on knowing. I don't even try to pride myself on that because what I was so sure about you know, at one point, now I think completely differently from that. And that's great. And that's wonderful. And I also think when you're talking about polarization, and discourses and so forth, I think something that I don't have the answer to, but I think a lot about is, you know, how do we make space for people to grow? Um, particular particularly people who have probably had egregious ways of viewing the world that were indeed harmful and violent. And I think a lot about the idea. And and again, I don't have the answer. I still grapple with it, but even things like restorative justice, or even I think applying a model like that, even to intellectual pursuits or even to sort of social justice, how can we sort of create a space for people to move beyond certain kinds of harmful sort of ways of being and seeing and doing in the world towards better ways without it being as punitive necessarily. And, and it's really hard to say, right? Because there's times I'm like this, you know, I'm not going to lie. There are situations where I'm just like, like Trump, I would have had it a really hard time to figure out how to do that. But even though I don't know the way to do it, I do think that should be something that can be done because I, and it's different, right? Because I don't have the same kind of power in society as, say, uh, you know, Trump or a white man, you know. So some of my harmful opinions in certain spaces don't have much leg room or where they can go, or, you know, they can't travel very far. But, you know, uh, but I also still in within my capacity, I have power as a professor, I have privilege in other ways. And, you know, and where my sort of beliefs and thoughts can impact people's lives in other kinds of ways. And so I think as we're talking about polarization and all of that, that's a question that I wanted to leave on. Is You know, um, it's so funny too. I remember you, I think the question that you asked was around why I think it's so polarized now and so forth. And I remember thinking about that question. And for me, I, I always, you know, my question back to that is always, Is it just now or is it just different kinds of ways of exposing the fractures now? And I don't know if you know a lot about tarot cards. So I love bringing it. (laughs) <laughs> okay so i love tarot cards i find the archetypes and images really sort of so there's divided into the major arcana minor arcana um and it's sort of the major arcana are, are set of cards that are about sort of these big human themes it's kind of almost familiar to youngian psychology in a way um so one of the cards that i like is this card called the tower and i don't know if you can see this card um yeah, so this card, you know, part of what this card is talking about is when you pull this card in like a divination or a reading, when it, one of what it's talking about is the fact that the structures that you have built were faulty, and prior to that card is a card called Judgment, and usually the idea is that with Judgment, you're getting these nudges. You're getting opportunities to look at what you created and to... Readjust and do something about it. However, when you don't do that, you move into the tower, which is where you see these figures. The building is burning, lightning struck it, it's on fire, they're jumping out, it's chaotic, it's a mess. And the way that I think about it, I'm like, okay, we're in the tower, like at this point where we've had several opportunities to make changes, to do things differently. And if we don't, then things get shaken up for you sort of forces against your own will, force you into that direction, force things to collapse. But the sort of hopeful part on the other end of the tower is a card the star. And the star is after the tower, after you destroy that foundation that was never good in the first place, you can get a chance to rebuild something better, right? And so I, I think for me, when I think about the polarization, when I think of all of that, I guess I think more about the, the the idea that I don't even want to move us quickly to trying to get to some kind of like kumbaya moment because I almost feel like everyone is so quick for that, right? So quick to oh, let's just, you know, come together and 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 I love coming together. Wonderful. Love it. <laughs> but it's almost like But if you don't excavate what is rotten, what is the point of coming back together only for it to fester? It's like if you have a cavity, you can't just fill it. They literally have to drill out the rot and then put, because if you don't, it's literally going to give an infection. It's going to cause worse problems. And so I think for me, the polarization to me is part of a kind of reckoning that should happen. And I think, though, in terms of how we move together from that point, though, goes back to my previous point about restorative justice and how do we sort of have the conversations that move people towards kind of a more fair, just, empathetic world um, without so much focus on the punitive nature. And I, I don't have an answer to it, but I think that's the conundrum.
0: I think, you know, what you're describing is something that I've thought a lot about with relation to how we think about our experience. And I think the the polarization, um, and also I think that some of the problems with with this importance of having to be right in the academic world um, comes from seeing the world as a snapshot instead of a process. Mm, That's a good everything's always changing. And so, you know, I I think back to my first book, which was published in 2000, which was on dementia in Japan. And people still cite that book. And I'm just like, will you people stop citing that book? It it can't be that way anymore. It's been, you know, 20, almost 30 years since I did that research. And it can't, it can't be an accurate representation of the way Japan is today. So, so, you know, we don't have to call it wrong but it's probably wrong in relation to the way things are now. And if we saw things as a process instead of, oh, he wrote a book and the book is true and he got it right, which there's no way I could have gotten it all right anyway. But even if we say that um, instead we'd say, okay, that book, we can stop worrying about that book. It can't be right anymore. Um, and, And I think we could do that with a lot of things. We could see, what's happening as a process instead of having to get the answer today and we solve the problem today we're not going to do it anyway um because everything's changing all the time and and you know it's in a strange way I, i think part of our problem stems from an unwillingness to accept the fact that evolution is real in everything that we experience it's not just biological, it's all of it, and and all evolution really is is just change. That's all it means, and and yet somehow we don't want to accept that, that change is just the way the world is.
1: Yes, I absolutely love that, John, because even the idea of process, so even the sort of tentative title of my book, Queer Journeys, one of the things that I do in that book is a lot of time when people study African diasporic religions, they or into spirit possession as this sort of spectacular moment of something happening and almost a snapshot. But what I'm doing is talking about journeys because I'm talking about trans journeys, which is different from spirit possession, I'm like, with these journeys people are having sort of spiritual citizenship in other sort of this idea of this kind of multiverse and they're sort of constantly in process where they can be in multiple places and spaces so even what time is, what time looks like, sort of the linear trajectory of time doesn't work that way and I think journeys allows us to see something different and I think what what you said about processes made me think about that, is that when when I'm talking about journeys, I'm talking about more of a process. I'm not talking about this sort of snapshot of this one time and one space or even like with spirit possession, this ecstatic moment that just happens. It's like, this is a constant journey that you're always sort of moving towards something. And, you know, there's no sort of, necessarily final arrival point it's always in flux it's always moving betwixt and between and i i I really like what you said because it really made me think about even how i envision the work that i do
0: yeah I, i think that's part of where um, you know, studying Japan has actually changed the way I think about my my research itself and and the more theoretical things. Because when you you look at Buddhism, for example, Buddhism doesn't have directionality. Changes. It's more like a kaleidoscope. You just turn the kaleidoscope, and things just keep getting reordered. But it's not going anywhere. There's no direction. It's very different from Abrahamic religions, where there's this this endpoint. And what I think a lot of times people don't recognize, and this is, you know, kind of back to this question of, of, you know, problem in our field in religious studies, I think an awful lot of scholars don't recognize that the way people think about religion is shaped by that Abrahamic linear concept of time and change. And, you know, and of course, part of the reason for that, I I did a, a I was teaching my course in Japanese religion this past term. I decided to have a little segment, you know, going over definitions of religion. And I did something I hadn't done before. I put in the PowerPoint pictures of each of the scholars that, that I drew on. And of course, you know what happened, right? All the pictures were old white men. And yet, and, and even if we, you know, forget about, the, the issues of culture and race involved with that, they're also old white men who are heavily influenced by that Abrahamic worldview. So they're constructing a, a way of thinking about religion and, and time associated with it that's influenced by that rather than, say, a, an East Asian worldview or whatever else.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I just always find that so fascinating and even why I'm interested in senses and sensory epistemologies is for similar reasons. certain things that we just naturalize so much. Oh, this is just, I'm like, no, you know, even the way we orient ourselves in the world, um, even how we, how we describe things, you know, for example, worldview or, you know, even things like that. It's like, for example, I sometimes say world sense instead of saying worldview, but even just, even the language that we use, even, and of course the language then shapes how we think about things and how we approach things. And so I'm always, even, I think I wasn't, I remember I was listening to a, a podcast, and they were talking about, I don't remember if it was in Chinese, certain kinds of Chinese cultures, but there was some sense of the idea being that, you know, how we think of the future as something in front of you, and the past as something behind you, and in this particular, um, you know, idea of time was that, okay, the past is actually something in front of you, but... Um, because you or not or the or the the sort of thinking of the past as something that's sort of in front of you and the future as behind you, but the way that why they thought of it that way was because something was behind you. You already um, you know sort of um, you don't know you can't see things behind your back. So they're like the future is behind you because you can't actually. See what's you know happening. The past is in front of you because you already know what happened, and so therefore you know. And I was like, that is such an interesting way to think about it. But just at at that point, I had never even considered that because it felt so you know intuitive. Of course, the future is in front of you, and of course, the past is behind you. But then it actually made perfect sense. It's like, no, if the future is something that you don't know, um, then and the past is something that you already know. Then of course, if something, if you're just living in the world and you're orienting it through your senses and you're like okay things are in front of me or things i can see i already saw the past i already know what happened so it's in front and the future i don't know what's gonna happen and so things behind me i can't see what's behind my head and so you know and so i had never thought about that but i think even just that kind of sort of different ways of orienting you know i love disorienting myself so that i can you know reorient in different ways
0: yeah. And, and that's, of course, that's what we've been talking about really through the whole thing here is that, that things like doing ethnographic research disorient yourself. That's what they do. I mean, you know, when I, I studied Japanese, one of the things that struck me was that the language doesn't make a sharp distinction between present and future tenses. It's kind of there, but it's, it's very different from the way it operates in English. And so Um, you know, then of course you start getting into these questions of, well, then how does that affect the way people perceive of these things as well? And so, but I think, you know, that, that really sums up. I think what we've been talking about is this importance. I think the importance of disruption, um, that, that we need to have these things that are disruptive in our lives to bring a sense of humility and to make us think about the things that we just assume are true. Um. You yeah, I think that's really powerful.
1: No, it, it absolutely is powerful, that disruption, um, you know, and, and again, going back to the vulnerability and all of that, I think ultimately the idea of intellectual humility for me is one that refuses comfort for too long. Um, and I think in order to be sort of embody that concept, you know, there has to be a willingness to be disconcerted, to be uncomfortable and, you know, to sort of constantly be willing to, you know, shake things up.
0: Yes. Well, that is a wonderful way to sum what, what we've talked about. And so I think it's a good time to sort of bring things to a close. This has been a f- fabulous conversation. I've really enjoyed this. And and I just really want to thank you for joining me on the
1: podcast. No, absolutely. Thank you so much, John. This was an amazing conversation. I didn't even feel like an hour. I could talk forever with you. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I agree.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.